There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the PR Weekly, the podcast that gives you your weekly fix of PR industry news, analysis, and gossip. I'm Arvin Hickman, news editor of PR Week, and I'm joined by... John Harrington, PR Week UK editor. Today, we're going to take a look at how agencies have performed in the past year. Our annual top 150 has dropped, and we have all the insights that you need to know. Also, there's been a major acquisition involving one of the hottest creative comms shops in the UK. And a bit later on, we'll take a look at the fallout of the controversial Super League proposal. We'll be joined by PR Week EMEA Editor-in-Chief Danny Rogers for his take on the Top 150, what it all means, and also being a very hardened Chelsea supporter, his views on the Super League saga. I can't see any way a lot of these owners are going to be unseated from running these clubs. John, how's your week been? Uh, busy, Arvind, yeah. Uh, I mean, the Top 150 um, is our biggest project of the year and it takes up uh, a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, thankfully, it's very well received and it's very nice to get it to get it out there. So it's been uh, it's been pretty hectic and especially with other, other stories going on in the background, as you mentioned, not, not least football. Exactly, exactly. What have been some of the behind-the-scenes sort of headaches that people, you know, who, who read our stuff don't really understand? Um... Well, you've got to kind of there is there are so many details involved in something like the top one fifty, you know, down to sort of oh actually could we change our name slightly from what you have listed to oh I didn't get the form, uh, or I thought that by that you meant that and all of these things and you know, usually there's sort of uh well potentially blame on both sides. Sometimes it's it's uh their fault, sometimes occasionally it's our fault. We do have to sort of um, deal with this and it's, uh, you know, it, it's lovely to see kind of um, everyone sort of uh, posting about where they are on the on the list and um, uh, celebrating it, which is brilliant. But, 
behind the scenes, there's uh, a lot of work that goes into it and um, unfortunately does so once once it's published. So um, I can't say I like this week, but um, I'm glad to have uh, have, have uh, completed it anyway. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, it's one of those massive weeks for us, but, you know, we're all so happy when it's done and dusted. And in this week's news, Publicist Group has acquired the award-winning creative PR agency Taylor Herring for an undisclosed fee. Samsung and former Facebook comms director Anushka Rwan has joined Soho House. Number 10 has hired Jack Doyle as its new director of comms, replacing James Slack. PR and sports marketing professionals have slammed comms around plans for a breakaway Super League in football. The PR industry has suffered its first aggregate decline in revenues in the past two decades, according to PR Week's Top 150. If you'd like to find out more about Top 150 and other news this week, please visit prweek.com forward slash UK. In this week's deep dive, PR Week reveals the top 150 PR agencies in the UK. And it's fair to say 2020 has been a year like no other. Some of our listeners might recall the bloodbath that preceded the global financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. But this feels another level worse. Some of the headline stats, the aggregate revenue earned by the top 150 agencies in 2020 was down by 4.3% to £1.36 billion. Now, in 2019, it grew by 7.6%. 85 of the top 150 had revenue drops. Yet again, comparing to 2019, it was only 24. But amid all of the doom and gloom of 2020, arrives some glimmers of sunshine for 2021. John, what does this research tell us it shows that 2020 was quite a brutal year, but there is still a lot of optimism for the year ahead. Yes, there is. Um, I mean, as you say, the headline numbers are brutal um, if you look at it and you, you compare it to previous years. As you say, aggregate revenue down 4.3%. It's been growing at high or, or low double digits for several years, actually. And, you know, we, we've heard several things about this. A lot of people have said the taps turned off from in terms of client spending, particularly in the second quarter, uh, consumer comms generally affected the hardest as, as well as those agencies and industries most heavily hit by COVID directly, such as travel and hospitality. But um, it's worth saying the decline wasn't universal, actually. Some agencies saw very decent growth last year um, in areas such as crisis, corporate, public affairs, ESG and, and healthcare. Many uh, agencies saw growth in these areas, sometimes quite strong growth, particularly agencies with some kind of international presence. Um, and even among consumer, you know, that there were quite a few consumer agencies that performed comparatively well across the year, um, particularly some of the smaller ones. And in consumer, there's been a lot of talk about recovery from, you know, perhaps as early as late summer and certainly into the autumn. And a lot of them say they've had a really bumper start to 2021 with a lot of pitches going on. And um, a few a few agencies actually have said to me they expect their financial years to be flat or in growth. So I think this is the sort of context where, we can get an idea of why there is quite a lot of optimism. Um, we asked the agency bosses how confident they are about uh, 2021 being a strong year of trading. 
and almost all were either moderately or very confident. Obviously, compared to the last year, anybody would be optimistic. I mean, I mean, how much of that is genuine optimism? No, it is. I mean, the th- this is a question. It's, it's, a, it's, it's worth picking up on that specific. We weren't asking people, do you expect 2021 to be a stronger year of trading? We asked them if we think it will be a strong year of trading. Um, so I think the fact that there is such overwhelming positivity about that. I mean, Palmy thinks this is kind of an optimistic industry generally. Um, and it is an industry that by its nature, it likes to talk things up and be enthusiastic and kind of look on the look on the bright side. But I also think it's it's based on the fact that so many are finding that, you know, if they if they've got this far, they've used furlough. They haven't necessarily had massive redundancies, although, you know, that quite a few agencies have have made redundancies, did make redundancies. A lot of them are hiring again. Um, a lot of them are saying it's among the busiest periods for pitching that, that they've known. And a lot of pitching is going towards earned media. So actually, I think a lot of the groundwork for this is what we've seen in recent years where kind of uh, PR agencies have um, really started to eat into other markets, you know, taking some of the market that might otherwise have gone to marketing ad agencies and also doing more of the consultancy uh, work that may have gone to to other organisations. So I think that although, as you say, it was it was very downbeat in 2020, that was a snapshot. You know that that was a period in time, and I think in a way we've we've got to look at it carefully, but we also shouldn't be too hung up on on individual performances. I mean, there's a there's a point I'm quite keen to make on this that uh, I think is worth bringing out that you know the top 150 this year, it was really noticeable the sheer range of performances. I, I've compared it to previous years, uh, and we've got a graph in our overview article that compares the kind of ranges of growth and decline among agencies in 2019 and 2020, i.e., how many experienced growth up to five percent declined from 15 to 20% or whatever. I know that sounds a bit complicated, but the basic message is there was far more spread of performance in 2020. You know, in a way, 2020 feels kind of like the year of no normal. It's it was such a unique situation that although, yeah, we, we can track trends that we've mentioned before, like the growth in public affairs, the importance of corporate comms, crisis and, and all the rest of it. But I think in a way that can only go so far because... There was a situation that won't be replicated in its, in that form again, even if COVID is around for quite a lot longer, which we hope it won't be. So it feels like there's a lot to there's a lot to glean from it. But I really think that if you're one of those one of those agencies that did perform badly, I almost wouldn't feel too downhearted about it. I mean, it was such a unique situation, and I think that if you're putting efforts in place uh, to to remedy the problems and if you sort of identified them. And let's face it, by this time, a lot of agencies have done that, or at least they know how they're going to do it. They've got a, they've got some decent plans in place. I really think it's 2020 should be seen as a, a snapshot of a really hard period, but one that's that's behind us. And I think that is where a lot of the optimism comes from. I think it's it feels like we finished the marathon and it was really hard and we've got bruised ankles and we've got aching bones, but I feel... We get, we've also got the runners high and I feel that there is a bit of a positive trajectory at the moment if I'm not mixing my metaphors too much. But, but looking back at 2020, I mean, obviously, you know, it didn't affect everyone in the same way. The point that you made before, which parts of the comms industry tended to perform better than others? Well, I think it was a lot of those that, um, well, it was, it was a number of things. I mean, generally, if you're if you're involved in sort of top level corporate and crisis, there was an opportunity there because, frankly, all comms was crisis comms to some extent last year. Would you say those particular consultants had a good year? Well, a lot of them did. 
Um, I mean, good is obviously a difficult term to talk about anyone's year during the pandemic. But in terms of in terms of trading, they did. And, you know, we, we saw some agencies grow organic revenue by 20, 25, 30 percent. And in one case, I think the highest was 58 percent, um, which is a, uh, a healthcare life sciences um, agency, which I appreciate is a very specific area. But nevertheless, there is some sort of, if you like, generalist corporate bit of consumer sort of um, agencies that, that did very well. And I, I think some of them have said they benefit from having a, a uh, an international base. That means, you know, clients have been wanting that kind of help across borders, because obviously this is a truly global problem. And for global agencies, they want that sort of focused approach. So, yeah. And then also a lot of healthcare agencies, those that are involved in the vaccine and other healthcare issues have obviously been in, in demand. There was m- more public sector spending with, um, you know, government and local authority campaigns and so on. You're seeing a lot of agencies investing in that specialism and, and a lot of groups investing more in, in acquiring that healthcare specialism because of, of what's gone on in the past year. Definitely. Well, it was a strange situation where we had a lot of people on furlough, quite a few people unfortunately made redundant. And I think a lot of very skilled people came into the into the jobs market around the summer. And I think quite a few agencies saw this as an opportunity actually to really kind of um bulk up their their specialisms so i really think that that was that was a factor and you notice that with healthcare for quite a few of the big kind of integrated agencies the top 20 agencies the kind of the strong performance of healthcare did help to mitigate the overall decline or the sort of a best flat kind of revenue that they saw so you know, it was it was clearly a, a boost. Not I say it wasn't universal. Not not everyone, in, even in healthcare, did did really well. And this is where I go back to that point about the no normal. I mean, part of the funny thing, the almost contradictory thing about this is we're talking about generalizations, right? But in a way, this is the worst year for generalizations. Although we're giving them, and they do stand, because there's for every every statement I make like this, you could always say yeah, but or uh, yeah, and but nevertheless. <laughs> There were certainly certainly opportunities and there are certainly some parts of the industry doing reasonably well. So what else can you tell us about the report? What, what are some of the other key findings? Um, we can look at issues like rents. Some of the highlights, um, I mean, I don't want to give too much away until we've reported it, <laughs> but there were some really interesting findings about rents, actually. We got some statistics about how many agencies have seen their rents go down and also some comments about what uh, different agencies have found with their, their rental situation. We've got some interesting information about furlough, how many agencies use that. And and also, it, it seems to me that, you know, a, a lot of agencies did, did use it, as you'd be unsurprised to hear. But I think it's fair to say there wasn't absolutely massive wide-scale redundancies. Um, I don't want to underplay that because, you know, all redundancies are extremely difficult. And, you know, a lot of agencies did have some redundancies, did make some. But... It strikes me that this is an industry where furlough was used to probably stave off some of that, um, at least for for a time. So there's some of the big, some of the big things we're talking about. Is sort of uh, challenges, biggest challenges. I mean, unsurprisingly, things like recruitment were significant uh, pressure on fees, client retention, and things like that. What was less uh, significant was Brexit. Actually, there was a sort of there's generally a sense that the impact of that hasn't been helped, uh, felt so far to much of an extent, although quite a few agencies are anxious about the future. 
And I, I would imagine that's something that is going to um, going to be a, a, a bane for quite a lot of agencies for a while. Do, do you reckon that, that, that that's partly because, you know, there's been much bigger problems like the pandemic? Yeah, I, I do think that. Yeah, I think that has just overshadowed so many things, frankly. And I think, again, I mean, there is there is also the argument that if you're an agency that if your clients were directly affected by Brexit in the same way if they were directly affected by um, COVID, it's almost more need for good corporate comms, for good crisis comms, for good public affairs. So, you know, there is also that argument that if you're representing, say, um, the, the seafood industry, for example, the fishing fishing industry, then, you know, maybe there, there's, there are opportunities there because that's that's a one sector that's um, had a really bad time. Yeah, it's a mixed picture, but there are certainly there are certainly concerns about that. Those concerns haven't gone away, but I think there's a general sense that for most, it's been broadly neutral. What would be your your final sort of words to the industry? Um, something looking ahead. Well, I think that it's important to put last year in context. That it is a, it was a unique year. That we're in a situation where. A lot of uh, a lot of the industry have got their sights set on growth, uh, and they're optimistic. And they've had a lot of uh, several several months now of quite a lot of opportunities in terms of new pitches, new business, um, and new hires and, and and restructures and so on. So I think the industry should have reason to be. I know it's a cliche, but cautiously optimistic. Fantastic. John, thanks so much for joining us this week. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about our top one hundred and fifty, please visit our website, PR Week dot com forward slash uk all of our coverage is there joining us on the pr weekly is pr week's emia editor-in-chief danny rogers danny you've been analyzing the industry for a long time now what were some of your main takeaways from this year's top 150 report hey arvind uh yeah i've been in and around pr week for the best part of two decades now for my sins so uh Possibly add a little bit of perspective to to some of the things that that John was saying earlier. Yes, it's amazing, really, isn't it? It's it's the first time in two decades that we've seen an aggregate fall in revenue from the top 150 agencies. It's really, really quite amazing. And to some extent, I think that's a, a sign of a mature industry in that at least we got the transparency from the agencies. Pretty much every UK agency gave us their revenue figures, despite it being a pretty poor year for a lot of people. So I'm so proud of the industry for practicing transparency, providing the figures, even though in some cases they were they were not great. And the amazing thing is that since the last recession, which probably peaked in 2009, the industry is about 50 or 60 percent bigger. So despite the 4.3 percent decline, it's now a £1.4 billion industry, which just goes to show what a mature contributor to the British economy it is. I was going to ask you, Danny, um, it's a really interesting point you made. How bad was it in the last recession when, when the GFC happened? How much of a hit did the industry take then and how would you compare it to this? It's a very interesting question. From my memory of 2009, this recession is is worse. Although that was a more of an economic recession rather than a a short, sharp shock that we had with the pandemic. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Our top 150 back in 2009 showed actually... Uh, just slightly less than 1% growth on aggregate. But I do think that a lot of agencies just didn't enter in 2009. So maybe that figure was a bit skewed. So possibly the last year is worse than 2009, but it's difficult to tell. Sure. When the GFC happened and and you like monitoring the fallout, are there anything with the pandemic um, that really sticks out as as being more challenging than the time that agencies had post-GFC? I think... This past year, this past recession has been completely unique in that business almost stopped for a quarter, didn't it, in 2020? You know, people just stopped being paid and stopped operating for a while. It was such a shock to the system. It makes it almost totally unique type of situation. Whereas in the last recession, it was a, it was a more gradual decline. So um, I don't think there'll ever be a year, hoping Never be another year like 2020. What are some of the things they're now saying to you? What, what, what is some of the sentiment that you're hearing? I think 2021 is going to be a very exciting year for the PR industry. I think particularly in social purpose, with the big climate conference coming up in November, there's a lot of focus on sustainability, on ESG, on corporate purpose. And that seems to me where a lot of the growth is, is going to come from. In terms of the challenges for the industry, I do think there's this big conversation to be had about working arrangements, whether or not they expect all their employees to get back in the office, uh, how much willingness there'll be for employees to come back to big cities and go back into offices. There's a sort of renegotiation between employer and employees. I mean, that's something that that we're kind of like grappling with at Haymark as well. How do you think the industry will handle this? Do do you think there's going to be a lot more flexibility? Do you think most agencies are going to downscale and and perhaps shift offices? Almost every PR business is rethinking its office at the moment. The good news for the PR industry is that most of those firms were already reasonably flexible. You know, I think PR and media has been a more progressive employment place than some, say, finance sector. Um, and every company is going to come to its own own conclusions over this. But I've got quite a lot of confidence that the sort of people who work in PR, the sort of employers are progressive enough to be flexible. Anything else from the um, 2020 um, Top 150 report that really stood out for you? What are some of the, the key takeaways that, that, that sort of, you know, made you really think? I think while healthcare PR has been growing for a number of years, it was the it was the sector that really got the biggest boost during the pandemic, perhaps unsurprisingly, but also corporate public affairs crisis. You know, these areas that 
perhaps 10 years ago were being somewhat deprioritized in favor of consumer PR. I've had this great renaissance. So now everybody's talking about corporate reputation again as the as the big growth area that that seemed to define 2020 for me. And, and do, you, do you reckon, I mean, going looking ahead, how does corporate reputation and, and healthcare and these other areas look going ahead? I think corporate reputation looks very interesting going ahead. I think the whole debate about ethical purpose has really moved on. And we now talk about ESG as a, a hygiene factor. You know, every company has to be walking the walk as well as talking the talk on ethics. And I don't think there's any going back on that. So if you're not a firm that's thinking carefully about corporate reputation and where ethical performance fits into that, you're not really going to be part of the top table anymore. What about consumer PR? Because I hear from a lot of agency bosses, a lot of consumer PR agencies, that they're now starting to get the sort of briefs um, much broader briefs, the sort of briefs that ad agencies might have had previously. It feels like they're encroaching in, in, into their space. Do you, do you sort of see that as well? Yes, for a long time we've talked about PR eating ad agencies lunch. And I do think that often happens in a recession because earned media does tend to be more credible and it tends to be more cost effective than than paid media. And the great thing about consumer PR in the last 10 or 20 years, it's become so much more genuinely creative. So it really is a viable alternative to advertising when it comes to getting brand messages across. So I do think consumer PR is in a good place as well. It's just that because it lives off marketing budgets, it's felt a little bit subdued over the past year. Uh, On that note, now I have to mention this, and I know I mentioned it in the news write-up, Taylor Herring going to MSL. What can you tell us about that? Taylor Herring being purchased by publicists is an enormous story. I mean, Taylor Herring was one of the you know, most famous boutique agencies, one of the most creative consumer PR agencies for the past 20 years. And now it's joining the publicist group, which um, hasn't always had the most creative reputation when it comes to PR and earned media. And I think this is why publicists is, is buying Taylor Herring. In terms of why Taylor Herring is prepared to sell at the moment, I would guess that it's looking to scale. I mean, although Taylor Herring is a very well-respected and highly creative agency, it's only two, three, four million uh, over the years. And this may well be an opportunity to really scale things up with the power of the publicist network. So it'd be fascinating to watch what happens over the next three or four years, which presumably is the earnout period for those agencies. Did you ever get a sense from James um, or, or, or was it, was it Kath, um, whether they were looking to sell, whether this was on the cards? No, I never got the impression. Knowing James quite well and Kath and Pete Mount Stevens, the other partner there, I didn't get the impression that they were they were keen to sell at all. Although I guess I've sensed a, a frustration over the years that they haven't been bigger, despite all the accolades they get and all the great client work they've done. They're still not a big agency, not even a mid-sized agency in PR Week's rankings. So I guess it's not that much of a surprise, but I certainly never heard of them looking to sell. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, it definitely shocks me. But 
I mean, it's a very, very interesting acquisition and, and we'll definitely look on with that with great interest. Now, Danny, I want to talk to you about the Super League. Um, a lot has changed in the past couple of days, in the past day, actually. Um, now, you know, you're a hardcore Chelsea supporter and, and you know, I support Liverpool. To begin with, just, just give us your impressions of how this has played out from your perspective. Yeah, it's been an amazing story. It's been an amazing week as a, as a football fan and as a business journalist, as we, as we both are. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen such a big story in a way come and go so quickly in that this only broke on Sunday and here we are in the middle of the following week and it's all unraveled so quickly. It seems to me a completely poorly conceived project from the beginning. And I do think the communications from those within the ESL, whatever the ESL is or or could have been, has been very poor. And the communication from the football clubs themselves hasn't been brilliant, has it, in terms of nobody's covered themselves in glory from the uh, the big six clubs or indeed anyone who's joined the ESL project. Yeah, exactly. I mean, being, being a Liverpool supporter, it's, it's been very, very difficult to sort of watch this because... As as you as I'm sure you have your own experiences with your own football club, but you, you sort of grow up and, and you have these ideals about what your club is and what it stands for and all these things, and, and all of a sudden all of that just goes, you know, it gets thrown out of the door. Um, the owners who are billionaire American owners, in your case Russian, don't really give a shit about your club ethos, um, and and they basically take you on this journey which disrespects a lot of the traditions that that your club has. Um, but for me, looking at this from, from a sort of a, you know, if I'm looking at the PR and comms around this, what's been really striking, and I think it's been across the whole the whole um, six clubs, the whole 12 clubs actually, is just how silent the owners have been. You know, they've basically gone out there with this one sort of statement where, where Joel Glazer and um, I think the guy from Juventus um, have, have made a couple of comments. They've said, this is what we're going to do. And the clubs have just repeated that and not said anything. They've not spoken to their managers. They've not spoken to their players. They've not spoken to their fans. Obviously, it's caused a massive backlash, but what sort of damage do you think this, this, this does, Danny, going forward for, for all of these clubs? A lot of these big clubs and these owners didn't have an amazing reputation anyway. Speaking as a, as a Chelsea fan, I mean, people have always criticised Roman Abramovich for his, his yachts and his uh, relationship with... Uh, President Putin and, and Russian oligarchs. And it it wasn't great anyway. But I do think in recent years, actually, Chelsea and Roman Abramovich have possibly improved their reputation a bit in terms of their investment in women's football and um, fighting racism and quite a lot of community initiatives. So perhaps the reputation was in was improving a little. I certainly think something like this sets it back, sets the reputation back for both Roman Abramovich and indeed all of the billionaire owners of the the big six clubs. Um, the mistrust was there anyway. The mistrust has been further heightened. It's very difficult to see where they go from here. Having said that, I can't see any way a lot of these owners are going to be unseated from running these clubs. So perhaps we all need to come to a, a negotiated relationship with the owners of our, our beloved clubs. I mean, our, our clubs, your and mine, have been around for... Uh, somewhere between 100 and 150 years. And, and these oligarchs have been around for 10 or 20. And uh, life will go on beyond them, no doubt. So 
we have to find our peace with this current phase of football ownership. I just think, I mean, from a Liverpool perspective, um, the fans really bought into to John Henry and, and FSG and, and, you know, I would say the majority of fans really have appreciated what they've done for the club. But this was just, I mean, it felt like betrayal. It just felt like they were just, everything they stood for before was, was completely fake. Um, and as soon as the opportunity came to, to grab some money and, and, and try and control the game, they, they went for it. Well, perhaps that's, is, is that a misunderstanding of what some of these owners are all about? Because um, it was always known that FSG was a, an American franchise owner and perhaps that's the way they do business. They, they see sports clubs as being guaranteed franchise, guaranteed income opportunities and they'll always, always be looking to protect their their income from year to year so perhaps although they they talk a good game in terms of respect and traditions that that is their way of doing business maybe that was a bit of naivety on the part of Liverpool fans yeah maybe it was um I think football fans naivety is an admirable quality I mean we all we all love our clubs and they all mean so much to us don't they from our our childhoods and our our families and so on and I don't think we can be criticised for being naive. We, we, we want the best for our, our clubs. We love, we love the players. We love the managers who do well. And, um, you know, we, we must be more cynical, I think, about these, these owners because it, if they really are only in it for the money and, and for making a quick buck over the next five or ten years, then uh, it's, it's not looking good for the future of these, these great teams. That's right. Given given the crisis, I mean, there has been some winners and losers of this. I mean, the losers obviously are the, the club owners. Um, they've, they've had to, to climb down in, in a really embarrassing fashion. But there have been some really strong voices and, and people who stood up. And I, I think it's worth mentioning some of those. Um, Gary Neville, for me, is definitely one of them. But, you know, even if you look at some of the players, you know, James Milner, he, he came out and pretty much dismissed it. Um, and later Liverpool players did. Um you know, there's examples with Manchester United where, where Bruno Fernandes also did the same thing. Who, who, who for you, if we look at the way this... this uh, I know it's a very, very fast-moving thing. If we look at the way this has evolved, who has really shone out as being such an effective communicator slash campaigner that's really influenced change? I agree that a lot of the players who have spoken out have spoken very well. And I think we underestimate footballers' ability to sense the mood of the nation and to understand the values of the the sport and of course last year we had Marcus Rashford and the brilliant work he did for feeding uh feeding poor kids and you know Jordan Henderson at at your own club has done an amazing job in terms of taking a an ethical lead Harry Kane at at Spurs last year did a lot of good work so perhaps we're just starting to understand that footballers despite the fact they've got generally quite a poor reputation because of all the scandals and, uh, and gossip over the over recent years that, you know, they do care. And um, I think all of the names you mentioned have, have done very well. I, I do think Gary Neville's become a very powerful voice for, for football. Sometimes he's a bit compromised between his love for Manchester United and his slight dislike of Liverpool, yet yeah, his... His desire to sort of uni- unite the football family—you, you kind of can't have it both ways—and therefore he had that bit of falling out with Jurgen Klopp, which, um, which was kind of amusing. Uh, so nobody's, you know, nobody's perfect, are they? And um, it, it, it's easy to take a, a moral high ground, perhaps for some 
people uh, rather than others. But, um, you know, I, th- I think players and fans have come out so much better than the owners. Which is re- really, really positive, isn't it? When you look forward. And one of the things that, that, you know, this illustrates to me is that fan power actually does matter. You know, may- maybe two days ago, I was like, oh, God, can this actually happen? Can I actually get away with this? But actually, no, they can't. And and I think that's a really positive thing going forward. Yeah, it is. And you make the comparison with, with America, don't you, where the NFL is this franchise model, a bit like the uh, the Super League was, was planning to be. And the American supporters just accept that. I guess it's always been like that. But that's clearly now that whole model without relegation is unacceptable to the UK and possibly to European football fans as well. And that's very reassuring to me. Uh, as a traditionalist. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I come from a country where we have, um, you know, sports like the NRL, which is um, Australian Rugby League and the AFL, which have a similar sort of franchise model, but they're very much closed environments. That There's no opportunity for relegation and promotion. You can't apply that to a global sport like football. And the idea that you can get some American guys come in here and say, well, actually, we want it to be just like the NFL, for me, is it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding of what football is, as you say. And it's such a universal sport, isn't it? That if you are going to have a Super League, you have to have representatives from every part of Europe, from every part of the UK. And it's it's just not going to happen. Not, not the elite few clubs from three countries. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not even a European sport, is it, really? No. Although, you know, I think what is interesting is though fan power has uh, been really impressive, what happens next? Because... I don't think a lot of the problems have been solved. I do think that the big clubs are now big businesses and they need to be big businesses if they're going to carry on attracting the best managers and the best players. How do they work out their business models so they know how they're going to generate that much income to fund uh, a lot of those purchases? And indeed, a lot of clubs are in in debt. Even the big successful clubs are are highly in debt. So something's got to change, I think. Yeah, I mean... mean what this does is expose some of the broader issues that that currently occur in football. Um, it, it doesn't really provide many answers. It, it solves one really poor idea, but yeah, there, there are many big issues that, that still need to be resolved. And um, yeah, I, I guess we'll see how they pan out. We will. It's going to be uh, continuing to a fascinating year in, in sports as, as well as politics and business. That is all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Danny and John and our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio. If you enjoy this podcast, please do visit prweek.com forward slash UK to stay up to date with all of our news and analysis. And would also love to hear your feedback on the PR Weekly. We hope you'll join us next week. Until then, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.